Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number seven, Joshua chapter five. We concluded our uh, study of the fourth chapter of Joshua last week by reading the first verse of the fifth chapter that explained that as a result of Israel being obedient to the Lord, the land of Canaan was already handed over to them. Further, Yehovah in his infinitely mysterious ways that man will never be able to fathom, had established in the minds of the Canaanites and Amorites that it was just a matter of time before they were defeated and destroyed by God's army. Therefore, the current residents of the land that God had promised to Abraham were sent spiraling into the depths of depression. Now, I also mentioned last week and the week before that as we worked our way through Joshua and then Judges, we were going to witness commands and laws and principles ordained in the Torah play out. However, at times it would be easy to overlook them because of the English translations of the original Hebrew and because this story was meant to be spoken by a storyteller rather than read as text. Okay. Therefore, not only are the scriptural words translated from Hebrew to English, so has the style been changed from one that was originally created for oral transmission, the spoken word, to one that was meant for silent reading in our personal study. Now, chapter five is full to the brim with divine principles and spiritual meaning that we're gonna take time to explore. So let's read Joshua chapter five together today. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter five. When all the kings of the Amori on the west side of the Yarden and all the kings of the Canaani near the sea heard how Adonai had dried up the Jordan River ahead of the people of Israel until they had crossed it, their hearts failed them and they fell into depression because of the people of Israel. It was at that time that Adonai said to Yahshua, make yourselves knives of flint and circumcise the people of Israel again a second time. So Yahshua made himself knives of flint and circumcised the people of Israel at Givat Arlot, the hill of foreskins. The reason Yahshua circumcised was that all the people who had left Egypt, who were males, all the fighting men, had died in the desert along the way after leaving Egypt. For although all the people who left Egypt had been circumcised, all those who had been born in the desert on the way as they went on from Egypt had not been circumcised because the people of Israel walked 40 years in the desert until the whole nation, that is the fighting men who had left Egypt, had died out because they had not heeded what Adonai said. Adonai had sworn that he would not allow them to see the land which Adonai swore to their ancestors that he would give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their children to take their place. And it was these who Joshua circumcised. Till then, they had been uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised while traveling. 
Now, when all the nation of, uh, had been circumcised, every one of them, they stayed where they were in camp until they'd healed. And Adonai said to Yahshua, Today I have rolled off of you the stigma of Egypt. That is why this place has been called Gilgal ever since. The people of Israel camped at Gilgal, and they observed Pesach, Passover, on the 14th day of the month there on the plains of Jericho. The day after Pesach, they ate what the land produced, matzah and roasted ears of grain that day. The following day after they had eaten food produced in the land, the manna ended. From then on, the people of Israel no longer had manna. Instead, that year, they ate the produce of the land of Canaan. One day, when Joshua was there by Jericho, he raised his eyes and he looked. And in front of him stood a man with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went over him to him and asked him, Are you on our side or on the side of our enemies? No, he replied. I am commander of Adonai's army. I have come just now. Joshua fell down with his face to the ground and worshipped him and then asked, What does my Lord have to say to his servant? The commander of Adonai's army answered Joshua, Take your sandals off your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy. And so Joshua did so. Now, although the Lord has gone to great lengths to establish Joshua's divinely appointed authority over Israel, we have to recognize and put to memory that Joshua was not given the same status as Moses. Moses was God's mediator, just as Yeshua would be. They're the only two mediators of, that, of their order in history. And as far as we know from scripture, they're the only two who will ever exist. Moses and Jesus. Now what distinguishes Moses and Jesus from all other men who were at times given the title of mediator is that they were appointed to hand down God's laws and commands to mankind. We're going to find that Joshua is at times called Israel's mediator. And sometimes the high priest is called Israel's mediator. And even the regular priests are on a couple of occasions referred to as mediators. But none of those spoke to God face to face. None of them established God's heavenly laws on earth as did Messiah, Yeshua, and Moses. At best, these various Old Testament leaders had the authority to teach the laws established by Moses and to enforce the commands that had been given on Mount Sinai and then on, Mo then on the hills of Moab. Now, even the great prophets that would come later, like Samuel and Isaiah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, Daniel, none of these brought new laws and commands, nor declared established laws void. Everything they presented to Israel 
were revelations of God's plans and instructions for Israel to scrupulously follow God's already long established laws. And often those divine instructions through those prophets involve threats of what would happen if Israel kept on that path of disobedience to the laws of Moses. Therefore, as we move forward through Joshua, Judges, and other books of the Old Testament, I want you to keep this foundational perspective firmly in the front of your minds. No new laws would be added. No previously established laws would be abolished because the only two people ever given the authority to do such a thing were Moses and Jesus. In fact, even angels or other divine beings were not given the authority to modify the law. Since the, now follow me here. Okay. Since the first mediator, Moses, was dead before Joshua took command, it was then going to be 1,300 years before God would establish his next mediator, Jesus. And therefore, we can confidently close our Bibles at the last words of Ezra, knowing that the Lord never authorized a change in his law. So as we enter the New Testament era, the same laws that Moses established remained intact. Okay. But what about when the new mediator, Messiah Jesus, arrived? Indeed, Yeshua did have the inherent authority as God's mediator to establish new laws, abolish old ones, since he was not only God's mediator, he was God himself. Of course, just as Moses only acted in God's direct will, so Yeshua did the same, and he made it clear that it was the Father's will that was being done in every case and not his own. So, here's the $64,000 question. Did mediator Jesus add laws or subtract laws or change laws that Moses enacted on God's behalf? Did Yeshua undo some or all of what the previous mediator, Moses, had established? Well, Jesus decided that he'd answer that question himself He'd answer it directly, without the aid of disciples or apostles, so that there would be no doubt as to the answer to that question. Matthew 5.17 Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a uter or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commands and teaches others to do that is going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, since some of you may object at times to my use of the complete Jewish Bible for our studies, let's hear that same passage in the King James Version. Think not that I come to destroy the law, nor the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill them. For verily I say to, unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot, not one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all is fulfilled. Whoever say, whoever, whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments, and shall teach men to do so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do them and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So according to Yeshua, even though he had the authority as a mediator to change, add, or even abolish divine laws and commands, is that what he did? He said he didn't. And Jesus followed that up with the dire warning that whomever said that he did abolish the laws of the prophets or that even that he had changed the most minute detail concerning them would be looked down upon by God and sent to the back of the line. Okay. But whoever tells others the truth that Jesus didn't touch the law but instead filled it full to its highest spiritual meaning would be held in the highest esteem by the Creator. Now stay with me, because I know most of you have heard me quote and teach on that passage many times, but I'm about to give you some more information that up to this point I've not talked about. I've already said to you that as we read through the Old Testament, don't ever think that God's prophets or kings or seers or judges or high priests or anybody else changed God's law. If you ever read in your studies an Old Testament passage that seems as though that might be the case, then by definition it's impossible because God establishes his laws only through his two mediators. Therefore, what we must do at all times is to take all the instructions and directions issued to Israel and hold them up to the light of the law as given by Moses and written down in the Torah. Now, it's not unlike the absolutely correct church understanding that however we might interpret his word, and that whatever deeds we might do in God's name as a step of obedience, it must be done within the context of loving the Lord with all of our minds, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor, neighbors as ourselves. It must be. If we believe anything, if we do anything in any other context than that, then we can know immediately that we are outside of God's will. Because the Torah says that all the commandments and the laws are built on that foundation and Jesus repeats it for emphasis. Now let me say that again because it's so key to correctly 
understanding and applying Holy Scripture. If while we're studying the Old Testament, we come upon a passage and we think that maybe this instruction or declaration said to have been issued by God through a prophet has just countermanded, added, subtracted from the law of Moses, then we have to discard that as a possibility and look to another interpretation because it's fundamentally impossible that anyone other than Lord's two mediators can even do such a thing. And we know Moses couldn't have countermanded any of his own commands any later than Mount Nebo in Moab because before Israel even entered the promised land, he died there. Therefore, whatever happens, whatever happens after the book of Deuteronomy cannot and does not involve any fundamental change of the law because until the advent of Yeshua 13 centuries later, no one else had the God-given authority. Are you with me? Okay, so... How might that principle apply to the New Testament? Now we just read in Matthew 5 that during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it clear that of all the things he did come to do, it wasn't to change one iota of the law, right? Well, apparently, at least until heaven and earth passes away, God was not going to do something unexpected like establish a third mediator. Nor would the Father perhaps instruct either a resurrected Moses or a returning Messiah Yeshua to change anything about the law. Right? And because heaven and earth didn't pass away while St. Paul and the writers of the New Testament walked the earth and it still hasn't passed away to this day, then since Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand, there has been no one, no one with sufficient authority to change or abolish God's laws. Now, as an aside, the Pope of the Catholic Church does claim the right to add, subtract, and change God's laws and commands, but I reject that doctrine. Not because he's a Catholic and I'm a Protestant, but because scripture never gives anybody other than Moses and Jesus the right to establish God's laws and commands upon mankind. That's it. Now, the modern church, especially the Western church, has been built far more on the writings of St. Paul than on Jesus' statements as recorded in the Gospels. And I'm not saying anything in that statement that a Catholic, a Baptist, a Pentecostal, an Episcopal, or any Christian theologian of most any denomination would disagree with. Paul is the New Testament author behind most church doctrine and structure. But here's the thing. While everything that St. Paul and all the other writers of the New Testament said is indeed God's inspired truth to man, none of them were given nor claimed any authority to make changes to God's laws or commands. 
The problem is that many of Paul's writings have been interpreted in such a way as to be the basis for many in the church to declare that the law has changed or it's been abolished. I'm telling you that that is not what Paul ever meant to communicate. And we can be sure of that because Paul wasn't a mediator. And therefore, he had no authority to change or abolish laws any more than Joshua did. Now let me say that again. If when we're reading the New Testament, you come across any statement by Paul, John, Peter, any of the New Testament writers that seems to indicate that the law has been changed or even abolished, then you have to discard that possibility and look for a different interpretation of their words. Otherwise, you are denying the foundational theological principle that only God's two mediators, Moses and Jesus, are the lawgivers. Either that, or you've decided that Jesus unambiguous statement in Matthew 5 that he did not come to change the law is false. Or that Paul has violated Jesus' command saying that the law has changed is a bad thing and it was abolished and thus Paul's letters ought to be removed from our Bibles because they're in error. So that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I do not think that Paul's letters are erroneous nor do I think they should be removed from our Bibles because I have no doubts they're completely accurate and true. What's erroneous are the interpretations made by an agenda-driven Gentile church who, since about 100 AD or so, want to find a means to declare the law null and void or faulty in some way in order to divest the church from its Hebrew faith roots like a guillotine divests a body from its head. What's problematic is that by church leadership declaring the Old Testament to be irrelevant for Christians, then all of God's patterns and his principles and his laws and his commands that have been established are annulled. And now it can all be manipulated and applied in an almost infinite number of directions or by declaring that the Torah is abolished or saying that it was nailed to the cross which is just another way of saying abolished okay, then all basis and foundation for interpreting and understanding the New Testament is lost. What is wrong is that the very same folks who confidently pronounce that God never changes believe that he did change in a very dramatic way that he established the law, declared it over and over to be forever, and then in one bold stroke did away with it. I'm here to tell you that none of that happened. That our God indeed does not change, and that I believe what Jesus said was true. Paul is also dead on right. Christ did things the law couldn't do. 
And that's because the law was not designed to do them. Christ is for justification and salvation. The law is to show us what sin is, what pleases God, and how to live the righteous lifestyle of saved people. Joshua would lead the people of Israel based on the understanding that the law of Moses was chiseled in stone and never to be tampered with. Some future leaders of Israel would go in another direction and they'd be declared evil by the Lord because they declared that their word overrode the word. Let's not accept such a thing from our Christian or Jewish leadership despite their lofty statures nor ever think that the Lord will show us a way that's different from what he specifically established in the Bible. Now as with the one I just covered, we've got a couple more great principles here in Joshua 5 that we're going to examine in depth, so let's move on from that one. In verse 2, Israel's now safely across the Jordan, and they're camped at Gilgal, just north, just a little bit north of Jericho. They're very close together, as you can see here on the map. The first thing Joshua orders is that all the males are to be circumcised. This circumcision ceremony would have involved somewhere around a million or more Israelite men and boys. In fact, a nickname was given to the place where this bloody ceremonial ritual must have gone on for a couple of days. Givat Harlot, which means the hill of foreskins. Very apt description, I suppose. Now, we're told that the reason for this mass Brit Milah, the reason it took place was that the former generation of the Exodus who had died out in the wilderness was the generation who had not been circumcised. But this new generation, the ones entering the promised land, had not been circumcised during the wilderness generation. For whatever reason, Moses had, Moses had suspended the circumcisions during their travels, perhaps because of the pain and infection that was normal and customary with such an operation. Now, why now, after they just crossed the Jordan, for the Brit Milah? Well, it gets complicated because there is deep spiritual meaning behind it and it is a shadow and a type for some significant New Testament happenings. First, it was because of the coming Passover. The Israelites were about to celebrate their first Passover in the Promised Land. And so, especially the males had to be properly prepared for such an event. It was the parents of this generation who had actually received the law after they had been circumcised. Circumcision had been going on among the Hebrews since the time of Abraham because circumcision was the sign of acceptance of the covenant of Abraham. With Moses at Mount Sinai, circumcision now also became a sign for acceptance of the covenant of Moses. 
since the Israelite males who had just crossed into Canaan were about to inherit the promised land that was at the core of the Abrahamic covenant, they had to be circumcised, otherwise they had no right to participate in receiving the fruit of that promise. Further, Joshua had been carefully instructed that he was to be obedient to the law, the Torah, and to ensure that all Israel followed the Torah in order for the Lord to bless everything that lay ahead of them. Since the sign of personal acceptance of both the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants was circumcision, it was essential that it be accomplished immediately as the first step of obedience after they've entered that new life after crossing the Jordan. But there was more. These Israelite males were to be God's holy warriors for his holy war upon Canaan. Only those under God's covenants were eligible to participate in God's holy wars. No foreigners, no mercenaries could ever be involved. The first verse of this chapter explained that essentially the Canaanites huddled together shaking in their boots over Israelite coming towards them. Under most any other circumstance, one would have expected the armies of the various Canaanite and Amorite tribes and city-states to fiercely attack Israel immediately upon or even during their fording of the Jordan when they were very vulnerable. Why didn't they? Because just as the Lord put a fear of dread into the Egyptians as one of the plagues, so the Lord put an immobilizing fear of Israel into the Canaanites. We're told that in verse 1 of chapter 5. This accomplished two things. It enabled Israel to cross the Jordan unopposed, and it allowed the army the healing time necessary from this mass circumcision ceremony. Now the example in Genesis of the males of Shechem being circumcised and then the sons of Jacob attacking and killing all the men of Shechem due to their weakened condition gives us some idea of the very serious repercussions of circumcision in that era. Okay. So there was great practicality involved in getting the Brit Milah out of the way first thing before they entered combat. Well, let's peel this onion back one more layer yet. It was essentially a second circumcision. Again, the words specifically say that. A second circumcision that was required of Israel immediately after they crossed over the Jordan. The first circumcision happened long ago. And it created Israel as a nation and as a people. And it bonded them to the two covenants of Abraham and Moses as both individuals and as a whole congregation. <clears throat> but in order for Israel to enter the promised land and receive their inheritance, God said a second circumcision was needed. Now we find this principle brought forward into the new covenant with Christ 
And it's illustrated for us in Paul's Romans 11 expose that uses the olive tree metaphor that we're all familiar with. You see, every Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. That circumcision ceremony signified his personal and official inclusion into the people of Israel by means of his now wearing the sign of the covenants of Abraham and Moses, the removal of his foreskin. Metaphorically speaking, it was those circumcised Jews who formed the olive tree. Or more simply put, the olive tree is Israel and the requirement to be part of Israel was circumcision. And it had been so since Abraham's time. To be part of physical Israel, one had to be circumcised. It all worked together. However, with the advent of Yeshua, something transformed. In order to become part of what Paul called true or spiritual Israel, an additional act had to take place or a Jew would be broken off as a branch of that olive tree and therefore no longer part of that tree. And that other act was, guess what? A second circumcision. Only now it had to be a circumcision of the heart. A circumcision of the heart was a metaphor for faith, for trust in God's Son, Jesus. It was a spiritual act. Further, just as all those of the Exodus generation who bore only the first circumcision died out in the wilderness and never entered into their rest, so do all Israelites who want to come to Yeshua have to die, spiritually speaking, to their old self if they want to enter their rest. Jews must have a second circumcision of the heart as a sign of their faith in Yeshua in order to remain a branch in that olive tree, the spiritual olive tree, and to inherit their final rest as a citizen of God's kingdom. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. If you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1403. Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read from Romans 2.13 and we're going to end at Romans 3.4. 2.13 through Romans 3.4. For it is not merely the hearers of Torah whom God considers righteous. It's the doers of what Torah says who will be made righteous in God's sight. For whenever Gentiles who have no Torah do naturally what the Torah requires, then these, even though they don't have Torah, for themselves are Torah. For their lives show that the conduct that the Torah dictates is written in their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness to this, for their conflicting thoughts sometimes accuse them and sometimes defend them on a day when God passes judgment on people's inmost secrets. 
according to the good news as I proclaim it, he does this through Messiah Yeshua. But if you call yourself a Jew and rest on Torah and boast about God and know his will and give your approval to what is right because you have been instructed from the Torah and if you have persuaded yourself that you are a guide to the blind, a light in the darkness, an instructor for the spiritually unaware and a teacher of children, since in the Torah you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, don't you teach yourself? Preaching, thou shalt not steal, do you steal? Saying, thou shalt not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Detesting idols, do you commit idolatrous acts? You who take such pride in Torah, do you by disobeying the Torah dishonor God? As it says in Tanakh, for it is because of you that God's name is blasphemed by the Goyim, the Gentiles. For circumcision is indeed of value if you do what the Torah says. But if you're a transgressor of Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised but obeys the Torah will stand as a judgment on you who've had a circumcision and have Torah written out, but you violate it. For the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. True circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the true Jew is one inwardly. And true circumcision is of the heart. Spiritual, not literal. So that the praise comes not from other people, but from God. Then, what advantage has the Jew? What's the value of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. If some of them were unfaithful, so what? Does their faithfulness or faithlessness cancel God's faithfulness? Heaven forbid. God would be true if everyone were a liar. As the Tanakh says, so that you, God, may be proved right in your words and win the verdict when you are put on trial. So here we have it. There is a physical circumcision, the first circumcision, that's certainly valid. And it makes one part of physical Israel, a Jew in our modern way of speaking. But there's also this second circumcision. And it is purely spiritual in nature. It makes one part of true spiritual Israel, God's ideal of Israel. And although the second circumcision is a requirement for Jews to be part of the ideal olive tree that was theirs to begin with, it is also available to Gentiles who want to become members of that same olive tree by means of those same covenants. See, there are several other passages in the New Testament that also deal with this, but one of my favorites is in Colossians because it dovetails so closely to our study in Joshua. Listen to Colossians, don't turn there, just listen to Colossians 2.9. For in him, Jesus, boldly lives the fullness of all that God is. 
and it is in union with him that you have been made full. He is the head of every rule and authority. Also, it was in union with him that you were circumcised with a circumcision not done by human hands, but accomplished by stripping away the old nature's control over the body. In this circumcision done by the Messiah, you were buried along with him by being immersed. And in union with him, you were raised up along with him by God's faithfulness that worked when he raised Yeshua from the dead. You were dead because of your sins. That is because of your foreskin, your old nature. But God made you alive along with the Messiah by forgiving you of all your sins. See, the pattern of what would come in the New Testament as a result of Yeshua's death and resurrection had long ago been established. And it was illustrated for us in the circumcision requirements of Joshua 5. The key words of the first few verses of chapter 5 are death or died and circumcision. Same two key words as we find in this passage of Colossians. And that's because Joshua 5 is the basis for Paul's rabbinical argument that he expresses in Colossians 2. Look again at Joshua 5. Go back to Joshua 5. Look at Josh, uh, verses 8 through 9. It says, When all the nation had been circumcised, every one of them, they stayed where they were in camp until they had healed. Adonai said to Joshua, Today I have rolled off from you the stigma of Egypt. That's why, they, why the place has been called Gilgal ever since. The people of Israel who bear only the first circumcision, continued to bear the stigma, and other versions might say reproach, of Egypt in God's eyes. The second circumcision, as led by Joshua, ended that stigma. Although the word construction is a little awkward for us, what the stigma or the reproach of Egypt is referring to is the disobedience that the first Exodus generation who were raised up in Egypt displayed towards the Lord. It was the stigma that led to their disobedience, that led to their dying out in the wilderness, thereby, and that means, being prohibited from ever entering into the land of God's rest. Jehovah essentially blames Egypt and their pagan ways for having polluted his people. And that was one of the primary causes for that first generation of the Exodus to behave in such a rebellious manner, thereby causing God's judgment upon that first generation. Although in this case, Egypt is, of course, real and literal as it, as it pertains to this situation, Egypt became a term um, in time used in Holy Scripture as a metaphor and an illustration of the sin and perversion that all the world bore and that had to be removed in order for anyone, Jew or Gentile, to stand righteous before God. If the stigma of disobedience wasn't removed by means of the second circumcision, 
then death, eternal death, was the consequence. Also notice that the name given to the place where Israel first camped and where the circumcision of over a million Israelites happened was Gilgal, which means rolling or rolled in Hebrew. As our complete Jewish Bible does a good job in explaining, Gilgal was given that name, rolled, because it was there that God rolled the stigma of Egypt off the backs of his people, the second circumcision. One more thing about the circumcision ceremony, this mass Brit Milah of Joshua 5 as it compares to the spiritual circumcision of the heart in the New Testament. Who led physical Israel over the Jordan River and then into the circumcision of foreskins ceremony? Who was the person? Joshua. What's Joshua's name in Hebrew? Yahashua, meaning God saves. Who led spiritual Israel over the Jordan and into the land of God's rest and then into a circumcision of the heart ceremony? Jesus, Yeshua. What's his name in Hebrew? Full name, Yahashua. God saves. Fascinating, isn't it? Now, I hope you see that the gospel of salvation is presented and it's embedded throughout the Torah and the Tanakh, the whole of the Old Testament. As I further hope and pray, you are getting a better understanding of the depth of the gospel that one really can't attain if we just casually throw away the first and foundational part of our Bibles, the Old Testament. Truly, we begin to see what Jesus meant when he stated he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. After the circumcision ceremony, verse 10 explains that they celebrated Passover on the 14th of the month. So they crossed over on the 10th, likely circumcised on the 12th and on and 13th, and then observed Passover on the 14th. The day after Passover, which is the 15th, day of the first month, is the feast of matzah. They ate unleavened bread and roasted grain. It says it was after this day that the manna stopped. And they ate food grown in the promised land. Now let me point out something that Richard S. Hess mentions in the Tyndale Commentary series about the issue of the transition of Israel from eating manna to eating food from the land of Canaan. Let me preface this by explaining to those of you who might not know that the Tyndale series and Tyndale Bible are created from a very traditional and theologically conservative viewpoint. What today is commonly called born again or evangelical Christian religious doctrines. Hess says this, that we cannot get around the fact that firmly coupled with Israel's crossing over from the wilderness to the promised land and from the first circumcision of death to the second circumcision of life and inheritance, we find that Israel's diet radically changes. 
instead of the manna they had eaten for almost their entire time of wandering, now they not only eat from the fruits of the promised land, but by possessing the promised land, they can now finally eat what I would label as biblically kosher. That's apart from rabbinic, rabbinically kosher. The laws of eating kosher didn't really apply in full for Israel until the congregation of Israel crossed over the Jordan, spiritually and physically. And I don't know of a Christian denomination that doesn't equate salvation with crossing over the Jordan. In fact, it's memorialized in many standard Christian hymns. So I find it puzzling that while Gentile Christianity almost universally sees the parallel correctly between crossing over the Jordan and redemption, it has also taken the opposite tact from what is demonstrated in Joshua 5. That after wandering in the wilderness for whatever portion of our lives and then our receiving the second circumcision, the spiritual one, that we just go right on eating the food of our wandering. Or one could even say more correctly, we just go right on eating as we did when we were in subjugation to an evil taskmaster in Egypt. Notice that it was only after the second circumcision that the food of wandering, manna, stopped. It was only after the Passover in Canaan that the Hebrews began to eat the biblically kosher diet prescribed in the law. The Bible makes diet an important part of understanding God's principles and laws. After Passover in Egypt, everything changed for Israel, and that change involved eating manna. After Passover in Canaan, everything changed again for Israel. And central to this change was a dramatic change in their diet from manna to biblical kosher. I find... This is a rather fundamental, if not compelling, argument for believers, Jew or Gentile, that diet is important to God and that we're meant to eat as much as is possible the prescribed diet for God's people. Let me emphasize yet again, though, that eating kosher is not a means to achieve salvation nor to maintain it. Okay. But it is equally important to see that eating kosher does seem to be a biblically desirable diet for those who have been redeemed. Though for many it's not a very pleasant thought, neither are many of other of God's laws that are aimed primarily at adults, such as giving sacrificially, charity, taking bold stands for the Lord, speaking out against evil, denying ourselves things that we could have, but perhaps it would be better for our relationship with the Lord if we didn't. Now let me preach at you for just a minute. The modern church has concerned itself with two things primarily. Getting saved and getting blessed. I've been in precious few churches in my life that deal with much beyond that agenda. Now it's as though the be-all end-all of our salvation is so that God will bless us first with eternal life and then with all the stuff we want. From health to money to a good job. 
anything else beyond that is seen, is seen as unnecessary or really irrelevant. Jesus, Paul, and other New Testament contributors said that salvation is the spiritual equivalent of going through the birth process all over again. Okay. And when we're born again, we are immature and we're naive. We're not supposed to stay that way, though, are we? No. We're supposed to grow. We're supposed to train ourselves. We're supposed to be more open to more challenging tasks. We're to let go of the overly simplistic, childlike ways and attitudes we had at first and engage the more difficult matters of our relationship with God. We're supposed to move away from being takers to being givers, from being cared for to caring for others, from moving from infancy to childhood to adulthood. This is traumatic. It's uncomfortable. It's trying. It's dangerous at times. But more is expected of us. Some of us are never successful. Some will go our entire lives making decisions as though we're still children. Always seeking more blessings and rarely seeking out to reach out and to bless others. We're perfectly satisfied and comfortable to accept God as a child does. And so we go to our graves still behaving like spiritual toddlers. And although Jesus tells us that accepting him as a child is where we're all to begin, and that is sufficient for salvation in him, that's not at all where we're supposed to remain. So here's the question to ponder. I'll leave you with this today. Is it time for you to leave behind years of spiritual childhood and move on to the greater things that await you in the Christian life? Is it time to realize that you haven't been force-fed spiritual milk? You've preferred it to heavenly meat. This is not an easy thing to face or to buy into because when we do this, things don't get any easier. They get a whole lot harder. Is being a parent or a grandparent an easier task than how your life was when you were in kindergarten? As spiritual adults, we face issues that force us to make tough choices that might not please our friends or maybe even please us. We become open to changes that are at times dramatic and, and not just a little bit scary. But things can also become much more satisfying. And a new and higher level of joy and peace can be attained because our lives are now playing out as they're supposed to as maturing and matured believers. So as Yeshua said, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. We'll move on with chapter 5 next week some more.